Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Greg Lois. I'm the managing partner of Lois Law Firm. We are 21 attorneys defending employers in New York and New Jersey workers' compensation cases. We focus on workers' comp defense, and we only represent employers, carriers, and self-insureds. If you're with us uh, today, it's to learn a little bit about defending motions for med and temp in New Jersey. Uh, this is totally live, so I'm hoping that everyone who's here today asks questions. Please feel comfortable doing that. I will not say your whole name when I respond to your question. I'll just say your first name and then read your question out and try to respond to it the best I can. Um, New Jersey's medical uh, treatment is required under its statute. Section 15 of the statute requires that we provide all necessary and curative care to our injured workers. Uh, today we're going to talk about medical care and we're also going to talk about sort of the extremes of medical care. Situations where the petitioner, mainly their attorneys really, is saying that we haven't provided all of the necessary and curative medical care to the petitioner and they filed something called the motion for med attempts demanding that care. So we're going to talk a lot about medical care today and we're even going to talk a little bit about New Jersey's new medicinal marijuana program. Uh, last month we talked about temporary disability benefits. Uh, that was in our July presentation. And coming up in November, we'll talk about permanent residual disability benefits. So today we're only going to focus on the one benefit, which is medical treatment in New Jersey and the motions uh, filed by claimants. We have an affirmative duty under the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act to provide all necessary and curative care. And that really means we have to provide medical treatment until the petitioner reaches maximum medical improvement as found by our physician. One of the great strengths of the uh, uh, workers' compensation system in New Jersey for employers and self-insureds and carriers is that we get to choose the physician. So generally speaking, we should be choosing excellent doctors, uh, most typically orthopedic surgeons, uh, really great specialists to get these employees returned to work as soon as we possibly can, allow them to restore their health and get back to uh, uh, productive capacity with us. Um, that's always in everyone's interest and that's the goal of our system. The employer has the right to direct and control care. Most of my clients have panel physicians, but also they feel comfortable reaching out to me and saying, hey, who's the right doctor for this specific type of loss, this specific type of injury? Our goals are to restore the petitioner to their pre-injury state as soon as possible and return them to the workplace. Now, sometimes it doesn't go right. Uh, and sometimes the petitioner falls into the clutches of a uh, avaricious uh, petitioner's attorney who is going to try to utilize the system to either obtain additional medical benefits, often uh, will seek to file motions for med and temp uh, just to generate an opportunity for them to obtain fees. Also, we have to be mindful of situations where the petitioner has a workers' compensation claim that we're defending or we're adjusting or examining or handling. And on the other side of it, they also have a general liability claim, perhaps a motor vehicle accident claim, or a general premises liability claim, or even a manufacturing defect or products liability claim against some other tortfeasor, some third party. In those circumstances, we see petitioners, injured workers, very motivated to get all sorts of medical treatment and include all sorts of throwing conditions, uh, extra body parts, always psychiatric, to try to beef up or increase the value of that civil action. It is their belief that if they get more medicals that they can, quote, put on the board in the, uh, before the jury in the civil action, they'll get more money. So I have to be mindful of that when we're defending these cases. Um, 
Now, we, there are many times we're going to dispute or deny care, and typically that's where our evaluating physician says, hey, this person has reached maximum medical improvement, or more typically, uh, when the treating physician, and that's the doctor who we've selected, says, you know what, this petitioner has reached maximum medical improvement, there is no more need for further curative care. Um, when we deny or dispute care, and when petitioner believes that they are entitled to more treatment or different treatment, uh, their remedy is through the workers' compensation system. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this can have real repercussions and a big impact on our exposure in a case because we will lose the ability to direct and control medical uh, once the claimant files a successful motion for medical and temporary disability benefits. We also have to pay fees, uh, and it's a little bit uh, of a penalty in this circumstance. So oftentimes the, uh, the assessment of a fee is something to be negotiated at the time the motion is resolved, but it's something to be very mindful. Uh, most judges are going to award a full statutory fee on medical treatment and lost time benefits, which are obtained through the use of a motion for medical and temporary disability benefits, and which is fully litigated. And that could be 20%. So in a case in which we're denying the need for perhaps a surgery, and maybe that surgery is going to cost thirty dollars to forty dollars to $50,000, the petitioner's attorney stands to obtain a 20% fee on that. Uh, in the case of a very simple arthroscopic knee surgery, the attorney's fee on that could be $10,000 for simply filing a couple pieces of paper and requiring the court to issue an order saying that we have to pay for it. So that provides the motivation for petitioner's counsel to file motions for medical and temporary disability benefits, seeking to wrest control of medical from the respondent uh, and to uh, obtain medical treatment perhaps uh, to benefit them in the avenue of pursuing a third-party case. All right, the fees are discretionary, but in my experience, when the case has to be litigated, and that means uh, the parties have to bring witnesses to court and the judge has to issue a decision, most times the judge will award the full statutory fee. It is limited to 20%, and uh, I want everyone to be cautious when you're entering an order or allowing an order to be entered in one of your workers' compensation cases. Oftentimes, we'll resolve a medical treatment issue, and in the order directing the carrier or employer to provide the medical treatment, petitioner's counsel will say, hey, let's not even put a fee in there. Let's figure that out at the end of the case. In fact, write in there, quote, fee to abide, close quote, or something like fee to be determined once we've reached the end of the case. I want everyone out there to be super cautious about that. Do not allow that to happen if you can. Sometimes the order entered at the conclusion of a motion for medical and temporary disability benefits will be prospective, right? Because uh, they came to court, they said, judge, I need 10 physical therapies and then a return visit to the orthopedic surgeon. And the judge says, you know what, I think you're right. Uh, give them eight physical therapies and a return to the orthopedic surgeon for a follow-up uh, evaluation. See you guys, have a great day. And you get an order that says fee to abide. All right, uh, sometimes that's going to happen because the treatment is highly prospective. You don't know uh, what it's going to cost at the time the order is entered. The danger is uh, that the petitioner goes to the eight or 10 physical therapies, then goes back to the orthopedic physician, and that physician says, you know what, I actually need a repeat MRI, and then I want you to do more physical therapy, and then I want you to come back here, and you know we're going to have six more visits. All of a sudden, uh, you may end up having to pay a fee on that if you allow that sloppy language, quote, fee to abide, close quote, get entered into that motion order. And that's because it doesn't have like a hard stop on it. There's no limit to it. And I want us to be very cautious about that. I've had situations in which um, 
I've looked at cases where the order said something like fee to abide. Two years worth of medical treatment goes by and all of a sudden petitioner's counsel is looking for a max fee on that. So that's something to be quite cautious about. All right, every motion we analyze here, we look at in terms of how do we defend it. And we look at all of the parts of the motion. Every motion has to have a notice of motion. The Workers' Compensation Division in New Jersey um, has some models on their website, and I've certainly put some models in the treatise that I co-authored for the LexisNexis publisher. Um, but nothing's required. Uh, the motion, there are no specific papers that have to be utilized, but there are some magic words and some magic inclusions that have to be made first. There needs to be a medical record from a physician saying that there is some future medical that's necessary or reasonable. Uh, the burden of proof is on the petitioner, and the petitioner has to say somewhere in that motion that first they requested the treatment and it was denied by the employer or carrier. There's one exception to that uh, having to ask us in advance, and that's where it would be impossible, right? And for example, where the claimant uh, is uh, unconscious or something like that, and they just simply can't ask, or where it's so emergent, where the circumstances are so uh, quick that they can't possibly um, give us the opportunity to respond to their request for treatment, uh, catastrophic accident or something like that. All right, the typical motion, uh, most practitioners in this state are utilizing the forms that are on the Division of Workers' Compensation's website or the forms that are in my book. Uh, the standard motion, we have 21 days to file our response. New Jersey also has an emergent motion, which I caution everyone about. They are very rarely used. Uh, only a handful of these are filed throughout the state in the year. The emergent motion is, is only allowed where the claimant will literally die or suffer irreparable harm if medical treatment is not immediately provided to them. So this is a very rarely used and almost never granted uh, motion. Uh, the timelines for responding are extremely quick, five days. In the emergent motions that I have handled, they have involved things like respiratory distress or extreme traumatic injury. Uh, almost every single one of them has been thrown out by the judge as not appropriate for the emergent track. And almost every single one was resolved at that first five-day phone conference that they have uh, with the judge of compensation. The Division of Workers' Compensation does an amazing job of very quickly putting these on the docket and resolving them very quickly and getting the parties together for at least a telephone conference very early in my experience. All right, how we defend these. We'll typically we'll look right at the rules. We'll say, hey, does this motion, is it even appropriate? Uh, so many motions that I see for medical and temporary disability benefits are really just seeking wage compensation, just temporary disability benefits. The medical is not really part of it. They're saying, hey, I was underpaid temp, or I need more temp, or my temp was cut off inappropriately. That's not really appropriate for a motion for medical and temporary disability benefits. Uh, unpaid temp or underpayment of temp is more reasonably resolved at the conclusion of a case. It should not be the subject of a motion on its own, and those will be found to be defective and typically thrown out. Um, in every case that we defend, we file an answering statement. We also file a brief explaining to court uh, why we are raising the defenses to this motion we are defending. Uh, and uh, we also try to defend with proofs. I like to respond to a motion by filing a date-by-date -date medical index showing all the treatment that was provided, showing that we were in compliance, showing that we tried to provide all treatment possible in this situation. So you always want to go into a motion for med and temp as an employer, as a respondent, as an insurance carrier, as a self-insured employer, as the most reasonable person in the room. 
I really want to walk into those motions and say, Judge, look, here's what we did for this injured worker. This was the appropriate standard of care. Here's why we think this was the appropriate standard of care. And look, Judge, here's all the medical records which show that we provided an appropriate and reasonable response and that this petitioner has all the curative treatment they've, uh, they've needed. We also are very uh, careful uh, when we're looking at the rules to make sure that the petitioner has requested the treatment that they're actually asking for. And this is really important. So many of the motions I defend, we show that the petitioner never actually even re requested it. They just went out and started treating with some new physician who we never authorized. Um, now, there is a possibility for the court to do a look back and say, hey, even though this treatment was not uh, correctly authorized or requested, it was necessary and it was curative, and that's really a hindsight test. That hindsight test really has to, the petitioner has to show, hey, I went and got this treatment on my own, and guess what? It was really useful, and I'm better now than I was before. Um, that's the Benson versus Coca-Cola hindsight test, and that's very useful for us in thinking about what kind of treatment we're going to provide. Um, I'm going to skip the last little part here where I talk about requests being futile. Uh, those really are reserved to circumstances where the claimant's either unconscious or there's such emergent circumstances they couldn't have possibly asked for the treatment. When I'm defending a motion and I have the opportunity to cross-examine the petitioner, one of the first questions I ask them is, hey, if you won this motion and the judge ordered us to provide you this surgery, uh, or invasive treatment or whatever it is you're seeking, would you actually undergo the surgery or treatment that you are requesting? So many times the motion is being made either for positional reasons or because the petitioner has a civil action and they're seeking to beef up the medical uh, or increase the amount of medical treatment they got on the workers' compensation case uh, to increase the valuation of that civil action. In those circumstances, I like to ask my petitioner who's sitting across from us in the courtroom, and I say, are, are, would you even want this care if we provided it to you? Do you understand how invasive it is and what the uh, perhaps repercussions of it? Do you understand why we deny the treatment and why we don't think this is curative? And it's rare, but you know, one out of 10 times a petitioner will say something like, yeah, I don't really want this treatment, or whoa, I didn't know, or no, I don't want to undergo surgery. So that's something to be thoughtful about. Um, the other thing is, has the petitioner previously been provided an opportunity for the treatment and refused it? This often comes up in the surgical context where the petitioner has been offered a surgery, declines to do it. Six months later, uh, we cut off temporary disability benefits because there is no ongoing treatment. And all of a sudden, they file a motion for med attempt saying, I want that treatment that I was, was discussed six months earlier. Uh, we argue to the judge that that's not really grounds for a motion. They've already refused care. And under Section 19, we shouldn't be responsible for it. Um, all right. The order of proofs in defending a motion is that the petitioner testifies first, then medical witnesses testify. Uh, typically, they do not get as that far. Uh, the court now allows for the testimony of our medical witnesses and the uh, petitioner's medical witnesses by way of video conferencing. So they can just WebEx into the or go to meeting just like we're doing right now, uh, and they can go in uh, and testify that way, which is a lot cheaper. Um, oftentimes, though, treating physicians will not come to court and testify, or the petitioner has gone out and obtained an expert's opinion or cons consultation opinion, which forms the basis of the motion for medical and temporary disability benefits, but then they can't afford for the person to come to court or the doctor refuses to come to court. Uh, in those circumstances, I have seen petitioners go out and then get a second opinion 
They'll get the second opinion from one of the typical petitioner's IME doctors. And I'm looking at you, Saul Myers Medical Associates, or the other uh, uh, petitioner-friendly physicians who find that everybody is totally disabled and needs more care at all times uh, to support their motion filing and uh, to come in and testify because they're much more amenable to coming to court to testify and they're a lot cheaper. In those circumstances, we argue that the motion is defective because the uh, petitioner uh, is getting an opinion that they need specific treatment that is not from a doctor who would actually execute or provide that treatment. I'm 100% certain that Dr. Mao, M-A-I-O of Saul Myers Medical, who produces hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe a thousand uh, workers' compensation uh, reports on behalf of petitioners a year, does zero surgeries, has never done an arthroscopic surgery, and will not ever be in an operating uh, theater performing any of the care that they're recommending for a petitioner in a uh, hypothetical uh, case that we're discussing. So for those reasons, we'll argue that those types of opinions obtained after the fact uh, and simply because the treating physician will testify are defective. Okay, after the order is, en is entered, uh, that order is appealable as of right. Um, it is rare, and I mean really rare, uh, to prevail on appealing a motion for med intent. Uh, we did this year in a case that we defended uh, for Utica Insurance, uh, the claimant in that case uh, filed a motion for med intent, and there was an issue as to who was the correct employer. Uh, we appealed that, went up to the appellate division, and prevailed. Uh, came back and told the court, nope, this doesn't fly. This motion is rescinded. Now, interestingly, the issue there wasn't whether medical treatment was necessary or reasonable. It was who should pay for it. Uh, and in my experience, it's extraordinarily rare to prevail in a motion for med intent appeal. In fact, to the point where I don't recommend them uh, except for extraordinary circumstances like the case I just uh, discussed, but which have a completely separate legal jurisdictional issue. Who's the right employer? That's a legal jurisdictional issue that really shouldn't have been the subject or determined in a motion for med intent. All right, after the order is entered, I want us to be extremely careful about the language that's put into that order uh, because any of the treatment that follows therefrom you, the carrier, or employer are going to be responsible for attorney's fees on that. So we want the narrowest, most limited order we can possibly get. Uh, motions for men and temp both figured heavily into the two decisions that we're aware of in New Jersey in, involving medicinal marijuana. Yes, New Jersey has a medicinal marijuana program. Uh, yes, it is expanding. And yes, there are now two workers' compensation decisions, one versus 84 Lumber and one versus the Township of Freehold, uh, in which the judge of compensation found that participation in the medical marijuana program was appropriate, reasonable, necessary, and curative, and actually palliative in both of these cases. Uh, the treatment was purely for pain. Uh, the tr a judge of compensation found that the petitioner was entitled to the treatment. The issue was who would pay for it and how medicinal marijuana would be paid. And in both cases, the petitioner paid for the medication uh, out of pocket. And in both cases, the employer was directed to reimburse the petitioner directly. Uh, New Jersey uh, employers, carriers, self-insureds, everybody, I don't want you paying for medical marijuana. You should not be. You cannot be. Uh, you will run afoul of federal laws. It is still a federally scheduled uh, uh, substance and absolutely you should not be paying for it. Uh, the exception to that is where you reimburse the petitioner directly and that is possible 
And in both cases that have come before the court, they came before the court by way of motions for medical and temporary disability benefits in which, in which the uh, petitioner said, I need this treatment. It would be, uh, it's necessary uh, to cure and relieve my condition. Uh, and in both cases, the judge of compensation found that the carrier, uh, one was a township of freehold, uh, the other was 84 lumber, uh, would have to reimburse the petitioner for those expenditures. All right, so I'm looking down here at my screen to see if I have any questions popping up just yet. I don't see any questions popping up, so either I talked really fast uh, or it could just be the end of the summer. It's our last week. Uh, before we all uh, go have our lovely uh, Labor Day holiday. Uh, looking down, I don't see any questions popping up. Uh, please join us next month. Next month, I will discuss um, how we defend cardiac and occupational exposure cases. Essentially, I'm going to lump in all the types of cases in which the burden of proof is on the petitioner and not on the employer. Um, and we're going to talk about how we approach those cases and specific defenses in those cases. Um, please join us for that next month. Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions that you just felt maybe too timid to type into the box, uh, feel free to email me or call me. Hope everybody has a great weekend and enjoy your Labor Day holiday. Bye.